Hey, it's me, Chris Ryan, host of The Watch Podcast. If you're a fan of this show, there's a new Spotify feature that lets you automatically follow the show. Tap the bell on the show page to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. This will come in really handy since Andy and I are doing succession recap pods on Sunday night. So as soon as you get that notification, it's time to listen to The Watch. By turning on new episode notifications, you'll also automatically start following the show All the latest episodes from shows you follow can be easily accessed in the What's New feed on home. Now, let's get to the watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line with an entire bottle of Burgundy, it's Andy Greenwald. I just feel like I'm in for it today. I already feel like it. I feel like... um, Dear listeners. The deck is stacked. (laughs) Today on The Watch podcast, I want to talk a little bit about the art of the pan when it comes to Mm. cultural criticism because I don't know if anybody has been online like I have and I'm online. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, some reviews for Ghostbusters colon Afterlife have been trickling in. And um, I don't know, it still has like an 80% Rotten Tomato meter somehow. But like every review I've seen has just been like, F this piece of S, you know, like yeah. really, really getting after it. The word corpse has been thrown around a lot mm-hmm. in Ghostbusters review- reviews. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the nostalgia industry, mm-hmm. um, franchises, IP, and our relationship to criticism. I also wanted to chat a little bit about the fact that um, this Batman movie is apparently three hours. (laughs) And I just wanted to see Andy's face when I told him that. My relationship with criticism is about to level up. Yeah, I wanted to hear about that. And then Andy and I are going to talk a little bit about what we're looking forward to for the new season of Succession, which obviously starts on Sunday night. And just as a reminder, you can catch the Watch podcast now on Sunday nights after Succession airs. So we'll go live with our episode recaps on Sunday nights. And then obviously on the um, Prestige TV pod, there's plenty of other offerings. Sean and Joanna, myself and Waz. I'm sure Bill will be jumping in. Andy. Andy's a one pod guy. That's what I love about him. His number mm-hmm. one I, pod is the Andy Greenwald show. <laughs> yes. And then sometimes when and I don't record that. carve out for the watch. <laughs> <laughs> a pre-existing contractual carve out to make occasional appearances on this show. Yeah. So last night, and this is, this is great because I can tell Andy's... Um, and he's kind of like licking his lips a little bit today. He's like kind of got his head in his hands because oh, Greenwald God. and I went out. We had a biz dinner last night. Uh, unfortunately, Kaya couldn't make the trek to the east side. But Andy and I went out and had a lovely meal, an Italian meal. 
It was great. Um, and then Greenwald pulled the power move uh, for anyone kind of over, I would say, the age of like 35. I've only really seen... <laughs> it's really Andy and Bill Simmons that I've seen pull this recently, which is... That's so nice. The coffee after dinner. Now, Bill is more of a coffee after dark guy, which I'm kind of like, you know, at four or five o'clock when I'm like, we're powering yeah. down for the evening. Bill will be like, time for the, the venti latte. Andy, last night, after a, a, honestly like a robust and a very rich meal that we had. And he yeah. went espresso shot as we dined over honeycomb ice cream. We, by the way, the pandemic era dining rule book thrown out the window when yeah. it comes to CR and AG. We were like, they were like one dish of ice cream, two spoons. <laughs> and I was like, lady, one spoon, one spoon. But I've known I this guy for 25 years. Felt like Tom Wham's games when, uh, when Greg does all the cocaine, where I was just like, I hope you don't die. Okay, can I explain myself a, a little bit? Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you been to First sleep? of all, the answer is uh, n- no, I can't explain myself. And yes, I am um, mature enough to admit that mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. In my defense, I had a very uh, confusing day yesterday. I had, I had, I think, five Zooms, very unlike <laughs> me. I had, I had meetings. There was a school thing for my daughter. So there was a lot of time in front of a screen. Yeah. I am maybe not as extreme as Bill, but or to the to the other extreme you. I, I am a 4 p.m. coffee guy at this mm-hmm. stage in life. I have become that. Otherwise, I am a what should we watch in a 8:30 on the couch guy. Right. So really the way I'm framing this is as an act of generosity. I don't have the afternoon coffee for me. I have the afternoon coffee so that my wife has someone to watch what we do in the shadows with. I right. am a giver, if nothing else. So yesterday, flashback to yesterday, meetings, Hollywood, it's all happening from this little room with a laptop. And then what's this? Look at the, look at the time. My gentleman date is waiting for me across from a plate of sea urchin spaghetti. I got to get there. I don't have time. I don't have time <laughs> that for my coffee. not getting any younger. No, it has been it has been shocked. You know what I yeah, mean? And from yeah. that moment, the countdown is on. So when we reached the end of the meal, I was like just weighing the numbers in my head. I was a beautiful minding on the window of my skull. And I was like, maybe this'll this'll serve me well because I still gotta drive home and et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I did not account for was that this was the uh brewed coffee equivalent of pink Peruvian flake in a Jay McInerney novel in 1986. There was a moment when we were chatting amiably, perhaps who knows about the podcasting business writ large, when I was like, what is that sound? It sounds like a steel bucket being knocked against the sides of an old stone well. And then I was like, oh, that's my heart inside of my body. You're just like, we got it for cheap three. I, my, my, I felt for the first time empathy for the old Warner Brothers cartoon when Wiley E. Coyote falls in love and his physical heart bursts so far out of his chest. It's as if he's trying out for an alien sequel. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Chris, I, I, and look, this is why you should never, never be friends with your podcast co host because it comes back in a public forum. No, it's what we got going for us is our chemistry. Did, 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 I, did I sleep well? Speaking about chemistry? No. <laughs> no. There were, here's how well I slept. At around 3 a.m., I caught myself thinking about 
how I had once read an article about how coffee naps are the best kind of naps. Oh, the one where you drink the coffee, go to sleep, and then let the coffee kick in and wake you up? Yeah. I was like trying to like microfiche my memory about what that was and what it would do to me. I wish I had... You know, I, I I think you commented on this recently about my ability to just sort of put my arms over my chest <laughs> like a vampire and go to sleep. Those it's days unreal. are long gone. Okay. Nothing makes me more jealous, though, when I read about the um, the day-to-day, hour-to-hour habits of professional athletes who right. have, like, very regimented schedules but are able to, like, take 15-minute naps throughout the day uh, and then eat totally. 16 peanut butter and jellies before they go play a basketball game or whatever, but are always, always finding these little crevasses of sleep. I don't, I, I can't do that anymore. Like I, basically I what happens is if I, if I'm so tired that I take a nap, I usually have like extreme sleep paralysis, TMJ <laughs> night terrors for 13 minutes and then wake up and like bark at my wife for some reason, because I think it's like 1979. <laughs> But see, here, here's the here's the the heart of a champion, Chris. It, it, at I, I woke up uh, as as I do at at five forty five a.m. I think perhaps I had gone to sleep, and I was in the kitchen, uh, doing dishes, uh, uh, making kids lunch, and yes, brewing myself a <laughs> espresso based coffee drink <laughs> because you got to dance with the devil that brung you. That's right. And at around uh, six thirteen or whatever a.m. When I heard the the rattling, this was not my left ventricle falling out of my body. This was the rattling of my of my daughter opening the door to, mm-hmm. to like to come out. I did hear your voice, your your accent saying, "Let the great game begin." Because I was like, "There is no from yeah. this moment on, there's no escape." Yeah, there, it, 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 this is where we're at. Uh, here's where we're at, Andy. Is that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this Ghostbusters movie, not in so much is because I'm very interested in, in the film itself, although it's probably something I will see. I don't see why not. And not as a way to preemptively start jumping up and down on, um, on, on the print, you know, like before I see it, there's, there's no judgment here, but I was struck by a couple of the early reviews. Like Ghostbusters is definitely not something where I'm just like, you can't spoil this for me. Like, I'm just like, feel free to spoil Ghostbusters for me. That's like a, fundamental misunderstanding of the charm of Ghostbusters is the idea that it could be spoiled. We're going to come back to that point. Okay, so the fundamental understanding or idea of Ghostbusters seems to be the thing that's up for debate right now because, Mm -hmm. you know, we had the first movie. It's a classic. I think it informed a lot of our sensibilities and our senses of humor. Bill Murray in that movie was very, very formative in terms of like, you know, cats and dogs living together and making kind of like sarcastic jokes. And not to make a ham-handed attempt to bring the first part of our podcast in line with the second part. But I think you learned a lot about your bedtime style and falling oh, asleep. Oh, Dana. Yeah, right. From Six the feet way, above the sheets. <laughs> from the way Dana just kind of like pieces out. Yeah. That's right. Um, so this is like, it, it, you know, this is sort of an interesting way to look at the life cycle of eighty beloved 80s franchises or intellectual property is like the thing that made it charming in the first place kind of goes through a bunch of different iterations as it gets reimagined and rebooted. Obviously, there was a second movie. It was had its its pleasures, but was not as kind of rewarding, I don't think, as the first one. And then everything T- kind of... Tell that to Peter McNichol's face. <laughs> right. And then everything kind of goes goes away as it should. Yeah. We have a revival a few years ago, a very hotly contested, honestly, like grossly contested female-centric reboot of the movie with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy directed by Paul Feig. And then that was 
kind of one of like the real hallmarks of like, guys, what are we doing here on on the internet? This is really fucking gross. Um, I think the, of of many other things that were happening around that time, but just the idea that there needed to be a we need to stand up for the original textural read textual reading of Ghostbusters and reject like women being Ghostbusters or whatever the hell that was about. And flash forward to our contemporary moment where I, th- I believe this movie's been done for some time, just delayed by COVID, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, directed by original Ghostbusters director Ivan Reitman's son, Jason Reitman, is now coming out in about a month. First reviews start coming in, and it does feel like there has been like a... Like all the critics were standing in a line looking at one another. One person took the step out and was like... <laughs> I hated it. And then everybody was like, okay, not only did I hate it, but now let's have a huge conversation about whether or not we are necrophiliacs, you yes. know, and whether or not we need to have like a serious look in the mirror about what we want from the movies and the the franchise movies and the Hollywood movies that we're getting right now. I'll just give you a little bit of a taste, Andy. So the it. Guardian really out here uh, on slimy, stinking corpse of a sequel island uh, critic Charles Bromesco goes on to say of the film's many Easter eggs, this is for the fans after all, but a peculiar breed of fan more interested in identifying objects than what's done with them, which I thought was uh, very well put. Alison Wilmore also hated this movie in Vulture. There are many others. There are also some that are just like, Jason Reitman corrects the wrongs of history and revives the great Ghostbusters lore. The one thing that's been consistent throughout this is that uh, many people have pointed out that they have taken what was a cynical, sarcastic, funny, scabrous movie in its inception in the first movie to a very sweet, amblin, uh, as in the Steven Spielberg sort of style, family dramedy. Now, this yep. time staring uh, Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd and Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace. So, all of that to be said, I just kind of wanted to see where you were at. Did you, have you read any of these reviews? Yes. Inject them into my veins. Okay. I love Why do you, all of them. So, do you say that because you're like, I used to be a critic and I miss a good pan? Or do you just say it because you're like, we need to kill this stuff? Both. I mean, I, 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 I can't help it. I will rubberneck at the scene of a crime, <laughs> especially a critical murdering which is what seems to be going on here um but i think the second point is is more important and i'm glad that some people are actually speaking up to this point i'm not sure and i think you sort of alluded to this at the beginning we haven't seen the movie i i don't wish the filmmakers any ill will it's interesting that this is the okay place to wage this war at this Mm -hmm. moment when i don't again having not seen the film just going off of the reviews, I don't see any functional difference between Ghostbusters Afterlife and uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. They seem to be both not sequels to any particular film, but sequels to arrested emotional experiences from a collective childhood that is very far in the rearview mirror. And and they're both I reactions think, to movies that challenged some of those exactly. ideas. Yeah, and then and I. And I I'm grateful to have this conversation. I hope that we live in a moment where we can have like a full-throated good faith cultural discourse about something. I'm not sure, sure that we do. Yeah, definitely. Um, but just to take a step back, I mean, we used to make this joke all the time and it's a sign of what deep, deep sea urchin eating nerds we are that we would do this. But like there was the idea uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, right, of new criticism. And a new criticism was that the work exists 
like razored out of It's just context. the text. It's just the it's text. It's just the text, man. So when you're reviewing a book or a play or an opera or whatever you might have been reviewing at that time, a daguerreotype perhaps, you are not talking about the life of the creator. You are not talking about the weather the day you saw it. You're not talking about the text relationship to anything that came before. Who the it's president the is the day that the, the book came out. Right. That obviously has could not be further from the way we engage with culture now. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing, but we have reached a point that I feel like is is noteworthy because we are not making sequels to movies. We are making sequels to our feelings about movies, to our experience watching movies. That's where we are in our collective cultural relationship to entertainment. That in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, I think, if you have something worthwhile to say about it. But there is something that is, you know, and I've said this before in different forms, I think, trouble, troubling and a little bit regressive in ways that I feel cons- legitimate concern about that the so much of our mainstream entertainment is centered at feverishly, flop-sweatingly recreating a probably imagined experience that people exactly our age had when we were seven, eight, or nine. Mm-hmm. You know, and preserving it in amber, and that the evolution from what you're saying, like a scabrous WTF bro comedy with Bill Murray just, you know, on fire like he's an NBA jam, but also ghosts because they snookered the studio into giving them the money, somehow being remembered as something about family or about loving kindness or warmth or not being an outcast. Or the power of science or whatever. Have they yeah. seen this movie? Yeah. It's insane. And I don't think it that this is where we're going says anything necessarily good about where we are with art or culture or society. Also, it's Stranger Things. I mean, not just because Finn Wolfhard is in it, but I think the genius, and I say that purely from a just, it, it's a hugely successful project that I have enjoyed intermittently. But the genius of Stranger Things is that Though it is, you know, it's not IP, what it's doing from its, you know, precarious place as a piece of original content, wrapping its arms around all of the vague feelings that you and I get from seeing a Fleer collector card set with Slimer on it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just that, that, that there's a ghost, it's the way it felt because, oh, I had a Huffy bike then too, and the characters have it. And also we like the Karate Kid sometimes, and it's all mixed in with our childhood. That's the project of Stranger Things, and you could make the case that it's successful because it's kind of like a, a great neutral bullet of mid-80s middle-class ennui or whatever, or daydreaming. I, I don't understand this idea that we needed some cultural corrective, not just because of the Ghostbusters sequel, but because of how we've all misremembered it or misappreciated it. And the thing that makes me insane, and you, please tell me if I'm wrong about this. Mm-hmm. I believe this was in the Guardian piece, and I couldn't tell if this was actually in the final print of the film, or if this was just a press screening or a New York Comic Con screening. It was a New York Comic Con surprise screening, and a lot of the reviews have sort of talked about like being in in the theater for that and having people kind of like yelping at at lines being regurgitated or little like right. props Easter being eggs. brought back. Yeah, and like just being like, "What the fuck is happening?" Well, let's come back to that. The thing that I read in the Guardian review suggested that the film begins with Ivan Reitman and Jason Reitman introducing it and talking about passing the torch from father to son with this great hallowed property. And I, I, I again, I wish the Reitman family no ill will. Both father and son have made good movies and seem like really decent people. But what the fuck? 
Right. Really? Right. That's what we're doing? I mean, is it far-fetched to suggest that this is the most insane public performance of filial affection since George W. Bush invaded Iraq? Like, is that, am I reaching? Like, why do we have to do this? I can see that the, the pans Go for have battering. a catch. Yeah, right, right. Go have a catch in the yard. We um, don't need this. I think that another thing that I was sort of fascinated by just reading these reviews and thinking about this stuff is the current state of the relationship between critic and audience because something changed along the way and I don't really know exactly where to pin it. And I'm sure mm-hmm. it's not one single moment. But it went from the relationship between critic and audience to critic and fan. And I think that uh, what happens is a lot of the times now, critics probably write or speak from the perspective of knowing that whatever they're talking about is not just a movie, but a lifestyle choice. And in some Mm -hmm. cases, even disturbingly, maybe a religion, you know, like something that someone builds a lot of their identity around is loving something almost unconditionally. And when you come to a piece of culture from the perspective of I'm going to try and make a nuanced argument about why this thing is successful and why this isn't successful and have like a kind of um, standard that I'm going to be judging everything against. You get into a very kind of like uh, electric territory, you know, of third rail kind of like, oh, did I, did I upset you by saying that this isn't, this isn't really that good, but this is a thing that you've kind of wrapped up a lot of your identity and whether it's like I am a ghostbuster or I just really love 80 shit so much and I don't want it knocked. I don't want to be told I'm a nerd. I don't want to be told that this was stupid. I don't want to be told that this wasn't a good movie or that this was a waste of time. But it's a really interesting thing because I think it was you and I were growing up. Certainly my dad practiced this art when he was a movie critic. I think that you were quite good when you would get mad about shows, even though uh, some of the shows that you didn't like, I, I happen to like quite a bit. But the art of panning something, the art of criticizing right. something is kind of... I don't know if it's endangered. Some of the times when I read pans these days, they're kind of, there are some that feel very obviously like bits, you know, like yes. I'm, I'm doing, a, I'm, I'm taking out a sacred cow or I'm panning something because I know it'll get clicks. Like there is that, that element to it. But I, I do, I have admiration for people who are willing to kind of make, make an argument where they're just like, this is not good enough, you know, and this is like, we deserve better as, a, as, as people who consume things. I think your point is really well made. And I think that the the standard by which we judge things has gotten really, really screwy. And I think that you look at, you know, one of our great bet noirs, Rise of Skywalker. I think there is a through line to the positive reviews of the movie. And I, and I, again, I'm trying to say this with, with genuine good intention. I think the things that would be praised in that movie are, you know, it played the familiar notes in a way that was a fitting or stirring end to a saga that has spanned 40 years. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it threw the stuff in the blender and it gave us this battle and this X-Wing and this resurrection and this whatever. And it ticked the boxes that would give people a pleasant nostalgic thrill. And who are we to deny people that pleasant nostalgic thrill? And let's just reiterate that point for a second. Those of us who are critics, we're critics, or whatever we are now, we are not denying you any thrills. We are not undoing this. We are not in charge of any major studios to date, although I think Chris has an inside track on the Paramount job should it open up again. (laughs) We're not denying the thrills. I think that what we're clinging to 
is some maybe outdated idea that if you have the opportunity to make a movie or a TV show and all the millions of dollars it entails, the goal should be saying something or doing something greater than I ticked the boxes, this is the best that I could do or the best that we could do given the circumstances, you know? And, I, and again, this gets into slippery terrain because we're not writing a review where we're placing this and we haven't seen the movie. We're not talking about its role. We're not even talking about how it fails in the third act or how the script struggles or whatever. We're just talking about kind of what it feels like and what it, how it slots into culture. I have every confidence in saying that Jason Reitman and everyone involved in this movie turned up for work every day with a big smile on their face. And they're like, we're going to do this. And we're thrilled about what we're doing. But yeah. when you put it into the larger context of things, yeah, it, it it does feel, and maybe I, I don't want to get too grandiose, though I did just compare this movie to the botched invasion of, of a sovereign <laughs> nation. Um, we are, all of us at this moment in America and the world, we're all speaking different languages at each mm -hmm. other. And I think fundamentally, this is one of one of the main, this isn't as major as like political fault lines, but this idea that if you make a Ghostbusters movie and make it good or don't make it, like, you know what I mean? Or like, do better. Don't just don't just break the toys out of the box one more time. But but maybe the bigger are maybe but maybe we're wrong. Like maybe that's just well. I I think I, I, know, I know you wanted to segue to something that, that one of the Russo brothers said, and I feel like there's a connection to be made here, which is that we're tr we're we're talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife like it's a movie, and yeah, it is not. That's exactly what I wanted it to say. It is a so franchise extension. Part of what I was thinking about with this this Ghostbusters critical kind of, uh, I guess, backlash or, or the, the, the first wave of criticism of, of this movie was a little bit about the experience I had watching No Time to Die, mm -hmm. uh, the most, most recent James Bond movie. As, as a person who's watched James Bond movies for most of my life, usually on marathons on like TBS-style stations or as a kind of uh, warm blanket on a cold day mm -hmm. to watch like from Russia with love and be transported, but essentially like just basically entertained. It's kind of interesting to go through the most recent batch of movies, especially the ones since Skyfall, Spectre, and this one, and have, you know, I think you wrote about this really well at Grantland, but the dark nightification of everything because mm -hmm. you want to imbue all of these franchise movies with stakes and consequences and trauma and origins and finales and everything has to matter. But, you know, I don't necessarily know that all of these movies and all of these franchises, and I certainly know as somebody who watched Ghostbusters for most of their life, that's not what Ghostbusters was about. You know what I mean? Ghostbusters was actually in on the joke. It was like, this is a trifle. This is about like three down and out New Yorkers who happened to fall into this moment of viral fame as yeah. supernatural scientists. Now, the thing you were mentioning about the Russo brothers, so like Joe Russo was uh, appearing at like a basically a, a distribution uh, conference, like a, a movie a movie industry festival in Rome, and somebody asked him at the festival. This was up on Deadline today. Like, do you think um, post pandemic or if there is a post pandemic uh, that independent films will return to movie theaters? And he was just just like, no, you know, I don't think that. Um, we'll see a resurgence of independent film in movie theaters. I think it's going to be streamers. I think you can go, like, it's the easiest thing for Netflix to greenlight as an independent movie to be shot, um, like, under their umbrella, to live on their platform. 
and um, they don't really mess with you creatively. So if you're lucky enough to get one of those deals and do it, I think that that's going to be the the sort of future. I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. You start to think about like what's in the movie theaters, and we're going to start talking more and more about a Marvel movie, a DC movie, a Star Wars movie, an IP movie, a Fast and Furious movie, a Bond movie, as if we're talking about The Revenant, or as if we're mm-hmm. talking about... I don't know, Mystic River. I mean, like, take your pick over, like, the last 40 years of, like, mm-hmm. both Hollywood dramas, but also independent films, like Linklater movies or Spike Lee movies or whatever. Mystic River would be an eight-episode miniseries Absolutely. if they were doing it today. Absolutely. And I think I just, like, was really feeling that this week where I was like, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I think part of what... Part of, like, the the kind of hand-wringing that goes into talking about a lot of these big franchise movies and a lot of these big fan property movies is because... There isn't actually this other band of films to go see and talk about. There's like six of them a year now as opposed to mm-hmm. 20 of them a year. And that's that's a pretty significant change in our culture. Yeah, and I think that, to, to loop back briefly, I think that might be why the knives are out uh, for Ghostbusters because it is a long-simmering frustration and feeling of helplessness from cinephiles and cinephiles who are also movie critics and people who cover the industry and realize what it is that they're covering year in and year out, which, which doesn't to say that like A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis don't enjoy dunking on Ant-Man 2 every now and again, but I would imagine knowing neither of them that the great joy in their life is being like going to Venice and seeing Moonlight and being like, this is, this is the thing of beauty and mm-hmm. let me tell you about it. And a lot of that frustration has been simmering and simmering and suddenly, as you said at the very beginning, the floodgates are out. Does Ghostbusters deserve it more than Rise of Skywalker or, you know, the movie based on the arcade game Rampage? Like, not necessarily. Yeah, or Free Guy or any of the movies that have just been kind of like, you know, cotton candy for your brain. Yeah. Yeah, because in fairness, I just I just want to circle back to this. Like, Jason Reitman is a Academy Award-nominated filmmaker who clearly wanted to do something fun and nice and family-oriented because his relationship to Ghostbusters is my dad made it, which is different than our relationship to it, which is I can't believe my dad let me see it. Right. Um, so is this the one that should be bearing the slings and arrows? Not necessarily, although I don't have a lot of desire to see it. But it was a long time coming for the exact reasons that you're suggesting. And to to Russo's point, I I do not have the industry perspective of any Russo brother, um, (laughs) the two we know about, or literally any others that might be out there. The Cooper Manning Russo brother out there? There must be at least one. But I, I can with some confidence say that he's right in my conversations with people at at agencies or at streaming services and things like there is at this moment, it might be closing, but there has been for the last two years, a kind of beautiful loophole Mm -hmm. where we went from an era where everyone who had a feature script was desperately studying, you know, the succession pilot to turn their two hour script into a, their, their 120 page feature into a 50 page pilot. Now we actually have the people who refuse to do it, or maybe just were fools enough to have a hundred page feature script anyway. That's the fastest way to production for a lot of things. Really? For the reasons that he's saying. Fast, I mean, putting speed on it probably is inaccurate, but there is a there is a path. There is a path because as he was saying, that is a relatively low cost investment for places like Netflix and Amazon and Apple to boost their library. And particularly if it's genre enough not to be a superhero movie or a detective movie, but genre enough that the avatar poster of it on Netflix communicates that it's a little scary mm-hmm. or that 
it's sexy or whatever, or that, that a, is a there's a gun in it. Yeah, that's a, exactly that is a slam dunk investment. And so a lot of those movies get made, and we don't cover them. We might not notice them, but they're they're coming. They're there. That's true. So that's why I, I was kind of I greeted the the rumor today that the Batman Matt Reeves is the Batman with Robert Pattinson as as the Batman was clocking in at about three hours in the version that was, I guess, shown to people and that it is a full-blown detective noir with the Riddler as the main villain. And um, obviously, I think the first reaction is just like, why Why can't any of these movies ever just be the, the two-hour and ten-minute like booster shot into your arm and then you get on with your day? Like, why does everything need to be like essentially like half of a half of a miniseries when you're going to see it. But on the other hand, the second part of that rumor that it was just like he made not a Batman origin story and not not a Batman finale mm-hmm. story, but a contained mystery is pretty exciting to me. Um, I wish more of these uh, franchise movies were less weighed down with the needs of either explaining their existence uh, reading their own eulogies or connecting to three other movies, like it'll, and I, I think that just just because like most people are pretty familiar with the six Batman movies that have come out in the last twelve years or whatever, y- you can kind of safely say like we don't need to explain that this guy is traumatized by his I, father's death. We we can I just mean, get we into n- the the crime stopping. First of all, put some respect on Martha Wayne's name. My bad. Um, yeah, but I think Thomas was shot first, so I get it. <laughs> but. I will celebrate this movie if Thomas and Martha Wayne do not even make an appearance. <laughs> if there's not even a passing reference, as long as Pattinson doesn't ever close his eyes, hear gunshots, a scream, the sound of pearls hitting pavement, and then shakes his head and opens his eyes to continue beating up the Riddler, like I will consider the movie a success. But I want to push back slightly. Again, we don't really know. Matt Reeves, Pattinson, Farrell, like, the cast, Zoe Kravitz, like, if they made a noir movie, I'm going to see it. If it happens to be called The Batman, okay, I'm going to see it at the Arclight, I guess. RIP. I'm not going to see it at the Arclight. I'm going to see it in the theater. <laughs> but um, I, I'm going to see it. So right. I, I should say that up front. But I do think it's it like might I'm be worth see it looking. on HBO Max. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't wait. And I'm going to have a coffee at 530. So yeah. I sit through the whole thing. I think it might be worth investigating the ways that the Trojan horsing of our IP content is subtly changing and evolving because, you know, I, I always have said, and, and we've, 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 catalog- we've cataloged it as it's happened on the podcast that Warner Brothers kind of like what me worry backing into a strategy for how to manage DC Comics properties has always been fascinating to me. They had the golden handcuffs, the literally the Oscar golden handcuffs of superhero movies that were critically adored and Mm -hmm. made a billion dollars with Christopher Nolan. But they were also like, that's great. You made an art film, but we just need to make more Batman movies now. So they're always going to be more. And so they kind of ended up with this. Well, there's a hundred Jokers and that's fine. Sure. And now Marvel's like, we're doing a multiverse. So maybe DC was ahead of the game. But I'm wondering what they, what lessons they've learned and how they're implementing them, because it could be from a distance that they are saying they're trying to have it always, but in a different way. We're going to let Matt Reeves make a three-hour noir art film because you can do that if it's called Batman and he punches the Riddler in it. That said, you and I both know, and I think it's been announced, that HBO Max has a Colin Farrell as the Penguin series 
in development mm-hmm. concurrently, much like they had a John Cena Peacemaker series in development concurrently with the Suicide Squad. That is how Warner Brothers operates now. Mm-hmm. So it's, I wonder if they're trying to achieve a new version of that sweet spot where everyone can be like, look at the way Warner's respected the artist by putting their movie on streaming day and date. No, let me start over. Look at the way Warner's <laughs> respected the artist by letting Matt Reeves make the Batman movie he wants to make. Yeah. And then they're already canvassing the town to see what exciting filmmaker wants to make their Batman movie. But we are going to squid game the corpse of this movie and harvest every piece of vital tissue into something else. And does that make me feel better about it or worse about it or nothing? I have no idea. How much do you think you could get away with as long as you punch the Riddler? Like, could it be Batman Kramer versus Kramer, but he punches the Riddler? I I would be so much more interested in chasing down those extremes. They are far too protective, and maybe reasonably so from a shareholder's perspective, of their precious, most valuable tokens to do that you know mm-hmm. what i mean like they they you can't it only I'll, I'll put it this way if marvel had always had the rights to spider-man internally there never would have been a into the spider-verse movie with john mulaney voicing spider-ham mm-hmm. there, there wouldn't maybe, maybe there would have been in a couple years or it would have been a, an episode of what if that was popular and so then maybe they did another one but the good stuff, whether it's on TV with like AMC making Breaking Bad and Mad Men or Sony being like, I, I, Craven the Hunter and Venom, I guess. Like that, it's when you don't have the options that the weird slash interesting good stuff happens. Yeah. Um, we could take a break here uh, and get into our conversation about succession right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. 
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. All right, buddy. In what feels like a torturous wait, we are finally on the precipice of a new season of Succession. Um, it has been a torturous wait. We've it's been two years, right? Two years. Um, and you know, we usually would expect Succession to arrive. I think what in August, typically, but in the two seasons before. The last time I talked to you about Succession, I think I was on my cell phone in a parking lot outside of a post production facility in Toluca Lake, working yeah. on Briar Patch, and right. that was that was <laughs> summer fall. Of right. two, of, and of as people know, that was basically your Kramer versus Kramer, but punching the Riddler. <laughs> that year of my life. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, I was wondering if whether or not you had, had a chance to go back and watch any succession. You know, there's been obviously like the ringer. We're doing a bunch of succession pods. I feel like there's just an enormous uh, groundswell of uh, of succession content out there. We're doing our fair share. Um, that kind of warrants a little bit of a look back, I think. And I, you know, I, I went back and rewatched chunks as well as the last couple of episodes of season two and was like just really pleasantly right back into the busting each other's balls and like jockeying for position for, for power and everything. It was like, it's a very good rewatch. It's also not like you, you just find all these jokes and bits and cutaways and facial expressions and things. But I was wondering if you had gotten a chance to go back and watch anything. Not only have I had a chance, I even jotted some things down. Specifically, three things that I noticed in doing some rewatching that surprised me, uh, as well as three things that the rewatching made me anticipate. Mm. And let's run through them. Uh, let's run through them. Let me begin. Let me preface this by saying um, two things. One, I think we actually covered this in the mailbag pod the other week. We don't rewatch stuff generally. Yeah. And it, because it, honestly, it's a luxury because, you know, there's always new stuff. I, would, and there's I, would, things to do I in watched life. season two twice. Like I watched each episode twice in the week that we did it last year because I was doing, obviously we were talking about it and then Jason mm-hmm. Concepcion and I were doing the number one boys show. So I was pretty thoroughly, like I remember what happened. I didn't. And I know this is super basic observation, but it was fascinating mm-hmm. to rewatch it. And really illuminating in a lot of exciting ways. I should also say, because I, in the spirit of Batman punching the Riddler, I want our listeners to know that in this country, in reality, not all heroes wear capes because Chris and I both have access to the first seven episodes of the new season and we haven't watched them. I mean, should we let that sink in? Is that gross? Is that like ordering a cupcake? No, I mean, I think- Bringing it you- to kindergarten and then- and then just throwing it in the trash in front of all the children <laughs> I don't think while it's they wasteful. cry. I just think that we're pacing ourselves because part of the fun of having a yes. weekly show is to live through it with everybody else and to experience it with that. everybody else. And there are so many shows that you do have to race ahead on, and Netflix shows specifically, where you're yeah. just like, God, I the, the clock is ticking as soon as this hits I, the service. I'm really excited to watch an episode and then just talk to you about it with that freshness and without being able to, to predict or mm-hmm. know and you know be, keep quiet about. So. That said, this show, people have had screeners. The show premiered, had a big, lavish premiere at the National History Museum in New York this week. 
rapturous response, but that also might have been rapturous response to the caviar bar underneath the giant floating whale. <laughs> um, literal whale, not like Stewie on the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, so rewatch. I think uh, my big thing about rewatching, then this this might be a very basic observation, but definitely made the seams of the show more visible to me. I think this is true of almost anything. It really reminded me how much of the pleasure of Succession, particularly the second season, was um, momentum based. It, it's such a th- it's such a thrill to have the new episode building on the one that came before, and where where we're going, and the stakes feel so high for all the characters that you're just breathlessly tumbling forward. When you're rewatching, you have a sense of where it's going, so you can relax and you can kind of see where things are happening. And watching it this time. I saw more of the seams, like the writer's room structure that carries you from one event to another. Um, you know, but it actually made me respect and love it more because sure. the structure is so good and so well chosen. Specifically, just like the framing, like the epic, not Shakespearean, but like just theatrical framing of the season finale on the yacht, like where the introduction of the reviews. So the reviews are coming for the play, mm-hmm. right? And and when are they going to come? And they're talking about it and they arrive on the boat talking about it. So where's their room for that? That's not going to step on the Logan stuff. And it comes pretty quickly, right? And it's all off Alan Ruck's face before, uh, what's her name? Willa. Uh, Willa throws the iPad in the ocean. Yeah. It's just a masterpiece of a scene and it's in like minute seven of the finale. And I just loved how neatly that was done especially the pleasure in watching it, knowing that it was coming, knowing what it is and not looking, peeking around the corner as to what was coming next. The second thing, and this might be the biggest thing. So maybe this should have been the first thing. Shouts to my bad list making. Um, In watching the show for the first time through the first two seasons, I was as guilty of this as anyone, but Kendall and Shiv get all the attention because they're carrying a lot of the plot. I feel Mm -hmm. like throughout the seasons, but Connor and Roman, on the rewatch, the power structure of the children is upended hmm. for me. And Connor and Roman shoot to the top. Ruck is doing a masterclass. Ruck's ability to play the idiocy, but also the pathos, you know, like in the scenes with, with Brian Cox when he's yeah. just muttering under his breath, like, how ang- his anger is leaking out at him, but he can't help it. Yeah, the scene in the finale where he asks for $100 million yes. and, and he's just like, sure, great, good good talk, great. <laughs> it's incredible. And it's it, he's just, he's extremely underrated in a show where everyone is very highly rated. But the Roman stuff was really messing with me in a really good way. I, I just, again, it's, so? it was, well, it was surprising to me. I, I fancy myself to be an astute watcher of things. Mm-hmm. But, it's very difficult with a lot of stuff happening and also watching it, you know, for plot as one needs to, if you're going to be podcasting about it to miss, to, to mix up signal and noise and to walk away from an episode in the same way that you'd walk away from a vulture listicle of like Romans 19 sickest burns from season two. Mm-hmm. The, what, what Kieran Culkin is doing with a performance, but also what Jesse Armstrong is doing with that character as being just a different, a, a differently hurt vehicle you know his hurt manifests in different ways leading to that finale on the boat you know when he sinks the deal and actually is asked his siblings if they would be nicer to him for a change yeah because he's like you know when i thought that i was gonna have my insides torn out and filled with concrete you know (laughs) i i i just um 
I just was really so impressed by those characters and by that performance, particularly standing out in a rewatch when you realize, and I, I, I'm curious if you off the top of your head have any comparisons for this, but like, what was the last show with an ensemble like this where there is no drag? Like, is it The Wire? No, where- I was going to say, I mean, you know, my first, first, first reaction to this is 30 Rock, you know? Great call. You're, you're talking about like the ninth person on that show still being like, holy shit, this guy is funny or holy shit, this woman's funny. Yeah, like, it- oh my God, this whole episode is Grizzin.com. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, that's the way I'm about Laird, you know, like, let's let's go. So that would lead me to... Um, oh, sorry. There was one other observation that came from the ensemble thing. This is amazing. Is, also watching Andy read a list because usually I, I, so much. I never do. So much of Greenwald is like impressively off the top of the head and watching you be we, like. We never write. I've never. I, I'm Chris. We are both Jay-Z in the booth, right? Like we don't write notes. One take and it's home. messing up yeah. the flow. I'm sorry, but I was so excited that I did want to jot some things down and look what it's done. Kaya, please. I'm just, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> At, can you think of that makes the other it sound thing, like Kaya is the only person who listens to us? I just do this to impress Kaya. That's right. I don't. I remember I was reading once you know, the TV chef and real life chef Ming Tsai, uh, who was on the Food Network for a while, and he has some restaurants in Boston or whatever. There was a profile of him in the New Yorker where he was talking about like how did you go from cooking in the kitchen to being natural on television, and he was just like, oh, so the advice someone gave me like he tapes a picture of someone he loves to the bottom of the camera, mm. you know, and like he just does the show for that person. Kaya, I do the show for you. I just, just to be honest. Um, so the other thing you love, the only thing you love more than note taking on <laughs> podcasts, Chris, is I know you love surprise questions uh-huh. that involve you like digging up your vast knowledge. That's right. But I, I, I pulled the 30 rock one out. I'm going to hit That was pretty good. Yeah. I'm I like was Gavin Lux up in this piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean that it didn't go all the way to the track? Do you mean yeah. the Dodger or do you mean Gavin Valor, the character Will Arnett played, <laughs> whose name I always mix up with Los Angeles Dodger rookie Gavin L- Okay. Um, I can't remember a show wired like Succession is at this point in its run, heading into the third season, where no plot lines drag. Because even at this point, and I again, I, I could be wrong, but like at, at the end of season two, The Sopranos had Furio from mm-hmm. Italy. And like, I, I didn't care about Furio flirting with Carmela. I'm sorry. I also didn't particularly care about like Dr. Melfi's bougie dinner parties with Peter Bogdanovich. Like when you cut there, I think we had TiVos or whatever, we could pause it. But if you were going to go grab some chips, like that would be a time to do it. Yeah. There's no plot line that succession cuts to through two seasons where I'm like time to sit a couple plays out. I would actually argue that succession is at its best when there are those plot lines. Like oh, that whoa, the, this is a nice turn. That the literal narrative of who will succeed Logan Roy, while I am very interested in it, I think is probably the thing most at the mercy of the success of the show. Mm. So answering the question, who will succeed Logan, is actually maybe something they want to avoid. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, like it's, yes. it's easier okay. when they can keep all the plates spinning and people angling for power and people, you know, the first episode of the second season is called secession. So maybe people seceding, all these things, like all the factionalism. That's great. But that's the thing that I think is probably going to be most artificially inflated over the next season if it, mm-hmm. that's just a guess I, I i haven't watched ahead i haven't read anything but i think that that's probably the most um 
difficult thing that they have to pull off is keeping that interesting. The shit that I love is the Pierce's or Shiv working for Evis or Kendall's sobriety or Valter or uh, Roman blowing up a a satellite. Like it's the stuff (laughs) that they actually do when they're not on the yacht that makes the yacht so fucking funny to me. Oh, I totally agree with you. And it's a great segue. See, this is why Kaya knows you're the best at this and doesn't, you don't have to prove anything. Um, one of the genuinely meant uh, or, or or heartfelt concern trolls I have for the, the upcoming season is kind of based on that, which is, you know, how many times can a company, fictional company that is clearly distressed, be pulled back from the brink? Mm-hmm. And I guess the flip side of that question, maybe the more artistically engaging way to ask the question is, how ruthless is Jesse Armstrong? Not how ruthless is Logan Roy, but how ruthless is Jesse Armstrong about where he wants the show to go, what he wants to do with it, and how willing he is to go all the way out on the plank of the yacht. Yachts don't have planks, but the Roy's yacht would if it could. They have like the inflated slide, yeah. Exactly, and then gone forever. Right. Um, what's the in the finale when Tom's like, that's bad, that's bad! <laughs> he goes off the slide. Um, but like, what is the mission of the show going to be? Like, does, is there, because HBO wants a lot more of this, obviously, as well they should. We want a lot more of it too. It, are we? I feel like this is the season we're going to know if the purpose of the show is to keep rearranging the deck chairs on the yacht or just refinishing the teak or whatever the metaphor you want to use is, or is Waystar done? And then mm-hmm. there's something else in its place. And you know that's very exciting, but I also understand why that might not be where a successful show wants to go. Yeah, I mean, in the way that we talk about TV shows, that's the kind of who will sit on the Iron Throne part of all of this yeah. is, is, is like, it's really just like a good organizing principle more than it is like a dramatic uh, imperative that we they figure really this out. Care I don't, I don't actually, I don't care that much. Run um, the company. But yeah, like you forget that Logan Roy spent most of the first season incapacitated, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that Armstrong probably has, if I had to guess, more guts than maybe we give him credit for because he will... He will take somebody like Kendall, who is at his sort of most tele- televisually pleasing, maybe when he's rapping or running around or saying, you know, closing Valter or doing whatever. But he'll keep him in like a fucking pain locker for most of season two, where he's just like walking around like a shell of himself and organizing his dad's pills. He'll um, give Roman, you know, like he'll take some a character like Roman who. I think if it was just a straight comedy would really just be there as maybe not like a Kramer style character, but as somebody who was like limited in their, in, in their kind of depth, right? Like they would, they would yeah. be maybe just like bring Roman in. He'll say something funny then a walk off screen, but nobody's going to take that character seriously. By the end of the second season of, of succession, you're kind of taking Roman seriously. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the thing, the reason the show is good is because Jesse Armstrong is not sentimental. I think mm-hmm. people haven't read it. You should check out the profile on him that was in the New Yorker last month. Um, it's just not how he's wired. Maybe it's partly being British. Maybe it's just who he is. It's why the show succeeds because it is not sentimental about stuff like that. So I, I have a lot of faith that he and the writers will continue to surprise us in a way that feels earned for the show. Do you have any, this is the other concern troll question. I know I just said that I don't know of a show that has this deep of a bench just in terms of supporting players, more players added to it this season. I think there's like Adrian Brody's on the season. Is there a Skarsgård on the season? Alexander Skarsgård and Sana Lathan. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Do you have any concern about that? Like, let David Raish cook is what I'm saying. Not you know what really. I mean? Like, I, I mean, I think that I think that it's very realistic for there to be like turnover at a company, and so then turnover with the faces you see. For as much as I like Carl and Frank, like I love I, Carl and Frank. I, I do. I really do. And um, oh my god, you know, I I I think that it's healthy for them to. It's very savvy and healthy for them to recycle like. Instead of Cherry Jones and Holly Hunter, you bring in Skarsgård and Brody and whoever else as antagonists. Um, as long as long as we get Stewie in the mix, like I'm, I'm good. I mean, just think about that though. It's just the quality all up and down because you get Danny Houston, who's a great character actor and a great presence, and you give him the scene in the season finale where, like, you know, where Roman basically is like, "This isn't a good deal," despite the fact that it's going to enrich you. Danny Houston's character mm-hmm. and Danny Houston is like his time on the show is over but he got flown to Italy to be on a yacht and do this great dialogue and then he gets to have an exit speech where he's like good night ladies good night and then they film him on a skiff going off into the Mediterranean <laughs> I mean like if the point of that is Adrian Brody's on the show this season but if Adrian Brody is smart or if his agents are good at communicating you take the gig even if it's just to be on a boat for two hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's clearly more than I mean, that, that, but I understand that's the, that's why That's the it thing would. that it has, that it's like, whether you, you know you compare it to Curb or any of the other great long-running comedies, kind of like, Ari Moyad being able to like, kind of be ab- absent for a lot that's of so season good. two and then come back at the very, in the finale and just eat cheese and sniff rosemary as he's just like, oh, you're going to stick your dick up my this. And like, yeah, like... It's so good. It's just, it's such I, an incredible, be, you be, being able to go to that bullpen it, is amazing. It's a, The show is just delicious. It's so funny. It's so well-written. I'm so excited. Um, I, I'm, I am just fanning about it. But I, I, I think the last point I wanted to make, again, this may have been well-covered in many of the other preseason buildups that mm-hmm. I have studiously avoided because I just wanted to watch the show. But it, it ties into my rewatch experience of, of, of Roman's role in it as not just the jokester and how artfully that was weaved in. And kind of, kind of if you squint, the, dry, the, the, the A plot of literally succession, I meaning the A plot of succession, which is about succession. Season one was Kendall. Season two was Shiv. I mean, who's, up, who's next up to bat? And thinking about the potential for the character that is a fan favorite for the jokes and the great performance, but... The last time we see Roman season two, you know, he's he's had these emotional experiences. He's been a little more level headed. He's asked his siblings to be like real human beings to him. He's expressed concern about Kendall. And then the last time we see him, he's having a steaming platter of shit pushed in front of him <laughs> by his the same brother that used to what, like lock him in a dog kennel. Yeah. So I'm here for that version of season three. I'm here you for are, any version. Yeah, I, I would love for this to be the Roman season. I'm, I'm here the for the Nicki Minaj season, <laughs> a.k.a. Roman's Revenge. <laughs> I could have said it better myself. We'll be back Sunday night. Catch us here on the watch feed for a recap of episode one of season three of Succession. There's stuff all week long. Sean and Joanna on Wednesdays on the Ringer Prestige TV pod. I'll be talking with Waz on Fridays as like kind of a preview for the episode. But Andy and I will be here Sunday nights, and I'm sure we'll also be chatting about it throughout the week on The Watch. Until then, Andy, I guess I'll see you Sunday night. I can't wait. Um, Kaya, how'd I, how'd I do today? You did really well, Andy. I'm really proud of you. Thank God. <laughs> thank you. That was thank, thank really you. sincere. 
<laughs> I know. I really believe that. I really needed that to get through the rest of my week. Kaya not turning video on and just coming in like the voice of God at the end is really like the energy I need to get me through the weekend. Um, we are produced by Kaya McMullen, a.k.a. God. We will be back with you on Sunday night. Take care. <laughs>